Um, all right, so here we go. Let me get this. So we're going to be finishing our section, uh, Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at this morning uh, the, the second part of verses 15 through 20. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 17, and we looked at the supremacy of Christ over creation. The supremacy of Christ over creation. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the supremacy of Christ part two, or part deux, if you're French. Uh, supremacy of Christ part two. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20. Now, last week we talked about how Jesus Christ was supreme or is supreme over creation. Now, Paul is giving this section verses 15 through 20, as a foundation to the book. He's already, he's already thanked, the, thanked God for what God was doing in the lives of the Colossians. He's already prayed for them and written his prayer and says, I haven't ceased to pray for you. And you find that in verses 9 through 14. And then he goes into this section, which is a fundamental or foundational section for the rest of the book. As I put it to you last week, if you mess this up, everything else falls over. Right? If you don't get Christ right, then it doesn't matter what else you believe. Right? And we talked about that last week. We talked about how Jesus Christ is the image of God. He's the exact representation of God. So when He was on earth and when He's exalted in heaven, He is fully God. Right? He's not just partially God. He's not just a form of God. He is God. We talked about how He was creator. How He created all things. We talked about how he was pre-existent, and he's existed before all time. And then we talked about how he sustains all things, that he holds all things together by the word of his power. Well, this morning we want to look at a new section, or part two, where we're talking about supremacy of Christ, and we're looking at verses 18 through 20. Sorry, I went the wrong way. Okay, there we go. And one of the things you want to look at, we want to look at... Christ supreme over his new creation. So in verses 15 through 17, you have Christ is supreme over all creation. Well, Paul shifts gears in verses 18 through 20, and he says Paul is supreme over the new creation. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll, we'll dig in in just a second. So verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So one of the things that, that, um, that, I, that I love, as for many of the things I love, is I always enjoyed snow. Like where, where I grew up, it would snow like once every, I don't know, six years. You know, you get a good, a good you know, couple, couple feet, so maybe half a meter. Um, every few years. I mean, it was really rare. And so, you know, if a kid, if it snowed while school was in, it was great. You got out of school. Everything would shut down. So we used to enjoy the snow. 
But one of the things I love to do is I love to go out and try to catch you know, snowflakes. Because depending on how much humidity was in the air, depending on how, what size the snowflakes are. And the great thing about snowflakes, and as you can see, here's a snowflake. The great thing about snowflakes is they are individually unique. Now, we've been able to classify, scientists classify snowflakes in the broad categories. But individually, they are very unique. And so I've got one here. It's very pretty. You can see We've got another one there, another snowflake, in case you've never seen them up close. Um, they're, they're just beautiful. And to me, it's just, it's just a perfect example of, of God and his creative ability that he's, he's, they're basically just molecules of water. They bond with dust, and they fall to the earth, and yet every one of them is, is intricate and beautiful and unique. And, and individually, you can have, if you catch them in your hand, you'll have several different types, and they'll all be just as unique as they can be. And so as I was thinking about Christ this week, and I was thinking about, uh, this just popped in my head, I was thinking about times going skiing and all the times trying to catch snowflakes, thinking about how unique they are, just thinking, look, Jesus Christ is absolutely unique. He is, he is supreme over his creation, and there's nothing in this universe that compares to him, right? He's absolutely unique. And so what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ as he's supreme over the new creation in verses 18 through 20. All right. So first of all, Paul says in verses 18, he says he is head of the body. And when we think about the body's head, we think about the fact that the head controls everything. Right? You realize your head, you have, not only does it, the, the central part of your nervous system, we think about our brain, we think about the glands in the head, right? the pituitary gland is a growth, has a growth hormone in it, the thyroid gland regulates energy, Right? You think about all the things that your head controls. Right? And, and if, you're, if you're looking for more information about that, contact Nia afterwards. She's doing her studies, and she'll tell you all about the head as she's studying for her, her uh, doctor exams. But, but the head, in the sense that the head brings life through the body. Right? The head regulates the body. The head governs the body. And so Paul's using this picture. He says that Christ is the head. Ephesians 1, 22-23 says... And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feel, fills all in all. So when you think about head, you think about authority. Jesus Christ has the authority over his church. He has the rule over his church. He's the head. He makes the decisions governing his body. Right? Jesus himself actually says that I will build my church. Right? He, he is directly linked to all of us as the head. We are parts of the body, right? So we're dependent upon Him. He governs us, right? But we're also dependent and we're linked to each other. Later on in Colossians, Colossians excuse me, verse 19 of chapter 2, Paul says that the, that the false teachers, he said they weren't holding and they were teaching to not hold fast to the head from whom the entire body is being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, and it grows with the growth that is from God. So when you think about the head, and you think about the, the way that the, the head of our own body causes growth, Christ causes growth in the body. Now, He does that several ways. He does it numerically, right? As we as individual Christians go out and share the gospel with those around us, Christ grows his body, but he also grows us in a maturity standpoint. Right? He gives us this word of God. He gives us teachers. Ephesians 4 speaks about God giving godly men in the church to help the body grow. And then we in turn grow 
encourage and we serve one another in the body life, in the body context. So Christ is the head from a supremacy standpoint. And as I was thinking about head of state, in the United States we kind of have it easy. You know, the head of state is the president. I was thinking, well, obviously the head of state for Australia is the queen, right? And so it's funny, I was doing a little research and I, and I came across a, an argument, I guess it was, a, it was an argument back in 1999, whether the governor general or the queen was actually head of state. And there was a big argument, it was, it was relating to the uh, republic referendum governing Australia, whether Australia would be a republic or continue to be a commonwealth. But it was interesting, the argument kept going back and forth until finally uh, the queen actually decided it herself. She sent, a, she sent a notice to the governor general and to the prime minister. She said, oh yeah, I'm going to address the, U, the UN, and uh, by the way, I'm going to address it as the head of state of Australia. And so, and so basically she said, I'm the head of state over all the British Commonwealth Islands. So the head of state is the, is the one who's supreme ultimately in authority. Now, largely in a constitutional monarchy, in a commonwealth that's more of a figurehead. But from a standpoint of Jesus Christ, he is the head, he's supreme, he's the one that has authority over us. Right? So we're talking about lordship. Right? You think about how often we, we try in our own, we, we try to be the head. Right? We, we ignore, at, at times we can ignore what scripture says, or we ignore the fellowship, right? And we, we try to do things our own way instead of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So he is our head. But not only is he head, Paul says, there's only one, sorry. And he also says that as head of the body, there is the church. Right? So the, the church in itself, the church here he says in verse seven, or 18, excuse me, he says head of the body, the church. The church literally in the Greek, the word means ekklesia. So it means called out ones. Right? We're called out of the world to what? To follow Christ, to obey Christ. That's, that's the role of the church, it's Christ's body. Right? So the word in itself is, is that we're separate from the world. We're, Peter says we're aliens and strangers. Right? We're different than the world. We're called out. It doesn't mean we're not a part of this world. We live in this world. Right? We're not to be monks. Right? We like to go and, and, and go and separate ourselves so far from the world that we have no, no earthly good, as the expression goes. Right? Be so heavenly minded. We're, we're to be out of the world in the sense that we're to be different than the world. We're to, we're to give glory to God by our actions. Right? How do we give glory to God? By being obedient to His Word. Right? To draw attention to the one true God. We've been singing all morning about the one true God. When we draw attention to Him, we praise His name publicly. So it's the church. We're separate. And one thing about the church is the church has a special place in God's redemptive plan. We're the bride of Christ. Right? We have, we've been given the commission to proclaim the gospel message. So as a church, we're special. And Jesus Christ is head of the body of the church. Right? Another part about the church is that we are a new creation. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What we say in John 3.3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Right? So we are a new creation in Christ. Right? We've, been, we've been pulled out of the muck, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses, pulled out of the muck. Colossians 1, we've been transfer, transferred excuse me, from the kingdom of this world 
to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're new creations in Christ. Right, we've been given a new heart. We can obey God. Right? The Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal, a down payment of what's going to happen fully when Christ comes back and we'll receive glorified bodies. So we're a new creation. All right? It begins now. And ultimately we realize fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? When we're with Christ forever and ever with glorified bodies. So we are a new creation. Individually we're a new creation. But we're also a new creation. You realize the church didn't exist. Right? A church didn't exist before Christ's resurrection. Right? You have the nation of Israel and the promises to the nation of Israel. And now you have a new creation. You have the church. There's very distinct. There are brethren among, uh, among Christianity and some are friends of mine who would say that there is no distinction between the church and Israel. And I would disagree. God has made promises, specific promises to the nation of Israel that you can read about in the Old Testament and those promises have not been fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. Right? The church is a different entity. We are a new creation. What makes us so great is that the church is full of Jews and Gentiles. There was an enmity. Right? I don't know about you, I actually don't know if anybody is Jewish in here. I'm a pig-eating Gentile. I like pork sandwiches and ham and bacon. Right? I'm a pig-eating Gentile. I had no promises made to me. Right? Paul says this in Romans. Gentiles were, were not partakers of the Old Testament covenants. We had no promises. We were far off from God, but we were brought near through the blood of Christ. We were joined together, Jews and Gentiles, in this age, in one body, the church. So we're a new creation individually, and we're a new creation corporately. Okay? Right? You think about, uh, you know, you guys may have heard on the news, and you think about the, the church, and I don't know if you knows, know this, the Notre Dame, Church of Notre Dame in, in France. They caught on fire, you know, how, how many hundreds and hundreds of years old. And unfortunately, they, they saved a lot of it, but all the roof, the, the wood timbers burned. It reminded me when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, I'd love to read history and le- read books on war. And I was thinking about the Germans bombing London and those old churches, and then, then the U.S. and uh, the Allies bombing Germany you know, in retaliation to try to eliminate their industry. And, and just thinking about all those old church buildings just burning up. And in my mind, when I was a kid, I didn't get the distinction that the buildings are not the church. The buildings are just buildings. The church is the people, Right? And so in my mind, I was thinking, well, well God, why don't you do something? Why, why don't you stop all those, the burning of those buildings? But as I got older, I realized that you know, those people that were Christians, they were hiding. They were hiding underground. They were hiding in people's other uh, cellars and subways. You know, God spared his church. The buildings are not eternal, but God's people are. So Christ is the head of the body. He's head of the church. Right? He loves his church. He is also the beginning. Verse 18, he says, He is head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. So he's the beginning. Okay? So it has to do with the origin. Right? Verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians says, But now that Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right? Ephesians 1 talks about Christ's work in salvation. We'll go through that in just a second. But, but Christ is the origin of the church. Right? Do you realize that because He rose from the dead, so will we from a resurrection standpoint. Right? We either, either Christ comes and we meet Him in the air, or we die, 
Our souls go to heaven to be with Him in His presence, but then, with the, but then we have a resurrection, a future resurrection where our body in a glorified sense is joined again with our spirit, and we have a resurrected body for all eternity. So Christ is the first fruit. He is the origin in the sense that He was the first one. And that's why He goes on the Father. And Paul says He's the, he's the firstborn out of the dead. Okay? Now, in the Greek it's very specific. It says out of. He's the first one to rise. He's talking about the resurrection. Right? It's His status. When you talk about firstborn, and we talked about this a little bit last time. I know some of you weren't here. When you think about firstborn, it's not chronologically firstborn. Right? Firstborn is a status, right? Think about Esau and Jacob, right? Jacob received all the blessings of the firstborn even though he was not the firstborn, right? God declares David, he says he's my firstborn. In other words, he's the highest rank, right? In Roman times, from a firstborn standpoint, you could designate someone your firstborn. Right? If you didn't have a son and you wanted to, you wanted to make sure all your property and your assets were were uh, passed on to somebody of your choosing versus going to the state. You could, you could designate somebody as your firstborn. So it's a position of honor. Okay? So Jesus Christ was is the origin. He's our origin. Origin of the church. It's where we came from. Right? He's the firstborn out of the dead. Like he, he, from a status standpoint, He is above all. Okay? I love what Ephesians 1 says when He talks about he talks about the, the Christ, uh, Christ being, the, being our origin in the, the, the Trinity and it's how the Trinity was involved in salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 3 that it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But it says He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Okay, in love he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Right? Notice how many times in Christ or in him, all right, to the praise of his glory. It said, in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Right? He made known mystery of his will and his kind intention, which he purposed in him. So I'll talk about in Christ. Verse 10 with a view to the ministration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Right? We have, we have the Holy Spirit sealed as a promise in Him, verse 13. So over and over you see that, that Christ is the beginning, the origin of the church. Right? He's our source. He is above all. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one as the power of death that is the devil. So Jesus, as the, as the firstborn, as the, as the origin, as the beginning, he has victory over evil. Right? He has victory over sin. He has victory over Satan. And he has victory over death. You know, one of the things that I was, I was thinking about as I was thinking about origin and I was thinking about sources, um, I used to love to go fishing at a little creek behind my house. It was called Contentney Creek. And when you're a kid, you think about, you know, you think about these big, these creeks. For you as a kid, they're like massive rivers. You know, you make little paper boats and I'd get in canoes and I, we would do a little fishing. And I think about this little creek. And get, you get older and you realize, man, this thing was really small. 
And as a kid, it's this massive flowing river. I mean, it was probably, you know, it's probably three meters wide at some point. You know, it's just a small thing. But I always used to think about, I wonder where this thing comes from. You know, where, where does this come from and where does it go? You kind of kind of run it across these rivers. I don't know if you guys have that. You, you visit a place and you see a river. You're like, I wonder where it comes from. I wonder where it's going, right? Because you know they meander. And I think about the source. Uh, I was reading an article about the Amazon and how they really don't know where it comes from. Like, even all, all our modern technology, they, they they think it comes from this. At one point, they thought it comes from this one lake, but now they're like, well, we're not sure it comes from that lake. We think it comes from from this mountain range, but well, and now we're not sure it might come from this other this other tributary. And, it, and they keep trying to figure it out, and they can't figure out exactly where the Amazon comes from, even with all our modern technology. Ladies and gentlemen, we know where we've come from, right? We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? We, we, were, we were selected by Him, we were called by Him, and we were saved by Him for His glory and ultimately for our own good for all eternity. Right? We, we don't have to wonder about our salvation. Jesus says in Matthew 16, He says, I will build My church of all the people who have been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is chief. He is the first one to, to not only to die and rise again, but to not die again. Right? A lot of times they'll say, well, Jesus is the first to be resurrected. Well, Lazarus was resurrected, but Lazarus died again. Can you imagine Lazarus for a second? Imagine you're with the Lord, and all of a sudden you have to leave the Lord and come back to this earth. Wow. I mean, I, sometimes we think about Lazarus and like, oh, it is a kind of a joyous thing, and you know, all, all his family and friends were joyous, but it doesn't really record Lazarus' response. Right? I always wondered, did he, did he remember being with the Lord? That would be kind of a bummer, right? I'm with the Lord in heaven, and it's, it's glorious, and all of a sudden it's, um, I'm back here again. Really? I mean, I know I love my family, but you, once you're with the Lord, you can't, can't be in a more glorious place, right? So Lazarus, Lazarus was resurrected, but Lazarus, he still died again. Right? Jesus died and he rose to never die again. He was exalted at the right hand of the Father. Right? So the beginning, you think about the church, we're, we were a little seed, right? Little C, little church, right? And you had Pentecost and it grew. And in Acts, you have the spread of the gospel and it's growing and it's growing to what it is today. I was reading an article talking about Christianity. Even, even when you compare it to other religions like um, Islam, that Christianity is still the, by number, it's estimated to still be the largest religion on earth. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, billions. I think I've heard an estimate of over, over 2 billion. And we have now whether all those are, are true believers, we'll, we'll see in heaven. But ultimately, those are our brothers and sisters around the world. Christ is the beginning, He's the first one of the dead. He's also preeminent. In verse 18, it says that He is the first one from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So you think about first place. We're talking about a real first place. I don't know if they do this here. We have field day. In the United States, a lot of schools have field day. When the, the kids go out and they, they do running and jumping and, and they race. And Well, they got to a point, especially in California, where you don't really have any winners or losers. Everybody gets a medal. Everybody gets a, a ribbon. There's, oh, you, you did a good job. You participated. You know what? That doesn't teach, doesn't teach our kids. That's not life. There are winners and losers, right? Well, Jesus isn't first place like 
first place among all the gods, and they're all kind of equal, and he's kind of there. Jesus is first place in the sense that his resurrection from the dead demonstrated clearly that Jesus was God and that he has a right to receive praise and honor and glory. Acts 2 says that he was exalted at the right hand of the Father. Right? In a race, it's not a competition because he's left everybody in the dust. Right? He's first in rank. He's the highest dignitary. And ultimately, the, the angels and the saints will sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I love what it says in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. In fact, I was, I was just going to reference it, but I just love this passage so much. Revelation chapter 5. Oops, sorry, I skipped my page. It says, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in, in them. I heard them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing be, excuse me, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So He is head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's preeminent. Not only is he he's first place, but in all things. He's first place in creation. In the sense that we've been talking about that, Paul's reiterating that, that Jesus Christ created all things. He's no comparison to Him with anything that has been created because He's so above that. But He's also to be first place in our lives. Right? You think about... Think about preeminence and how quickly from a nation-state standpoint, preeminence comes and it goes right? throughout history. Like I said, I love history. You read about the different empires. About, you, know, you, have, you have Babylon and you have the, the Medes that destroyed the Babylonians. And then you have the, the Greeks and Macedonians that destroyed the Medes. And then you have the Romans that destroyed the, the Greek Macedonian Empire and, and on and on and on. Even today, you know, at one point, the sun never set on the British Empire. The British Empire is a, is a shadow of its former self. Right? Even the, the United States, is, it's its preeminent position. At one time, who knows when, the United States will fall out of that preeminent position because God determines nation-states, determines their glory and their time on this earth. From, from a standpoint of Jesus Christ, His preeminence, His glory will not fade. He is first place in everything. Right? He's preeminent above of the old creation, of the creation we live in now, and He's preeminent of the new creation, not only beginning in our, our own lives and ultimately culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. Is He your chief joy? Right? Is He preeminent in your life? Is He your chief desire? Right? Is He first in your life? Is He Lord? Right? Or do you reserve some places in your heart for other things? You want to know what your chief joy and chief love is? Right? What do you give your time, your energy, the finances that you have to? Right? I had the sad, I've had the sad, um, sad situation over the years of counseling um, families that have had teenagers. And a lot of times in those teenagers' lives, you know, they'll turn away from the Lord, or as they get into uni, they'll turn away from the Lord. And the parents have come to me, and they're like, you know, I, I brought my kid up in the church, and I did the best I could, and you know, I'm struggling with the fact that my, my son or my daughter is living a pagan life. You know, can you help me? And, 
it's one of those things at that point in time, it's, it's really too late. Right? The way I can help them is to help pray for them, help them, help them with words to say, to, to, try, to try to call their, their son, their daughter back from, from where they're going from a standpoint of repentance. But one of the things, I, and these families, a lot of them I've known just being, being, uh, being in ministry, is what I noticed with a lot of these families is they made church just one of many activities, right? So they would go to church on Sunday, but they would, they, they would miss church if it, if it meant, oh, we have a hockey game, all right? Or for we, we would have youth group on Wednesday nights. Well, we'd miss, we'd miss youth group because there's, you know, they, they have dance practice, Right or or you know what we we can't come to church because we have you know our our multiple vacations planned and lined up right you see church was just one of one of many things it's kind of one of many feathers in a hat one of many many things on the calendar we go to church here and then we have choir practice and then we have uh, we have school here and then we go to 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 band and then we go to uh, footy and then we do all these things and oh we have these things going on on Sunday well we can't go to church you see it's about prioritization so when you think about your life and you think about is Christ first place is he lord where's your priorities right and there's it's good for us always to reevaluate where's our priorities right finances do we give to support the ministry of the church? Right? We help God build God's kingdom. Right? It's our responsibility to, to support the local ministry. Right? Do, we, do we give our time? Right? So Christ should be preeminent. Is he, he, is he your chief joy? Is he first? Do you follow him above all? If you're his child, according to the new birth, he should be Lord of your life. So not only is he head of the body, He's the beginning. He's preeminent, but he's also deity. Paul continues, like, why, why should we think of him as preeminent? Well, he goes further and he says, look, he, he says in verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I started thinking about good pleasure. Good pleasure, right? And, and one of the things I was thinking about, I was thinking about Matthew three seventeen, when Jesus was, was baptized. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then later on in Jesus' transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5, He says it again, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Right? It's the pleasure that God the Father takes in the Son. Right? Because it's God's good pleasure. Pleasure is, is the joy that we have. Right? I take joy in my son, the pleasure that I have in my son and, and, and how he acts and how he, how he grows, how he learns. Right? Because ultimately it is a reflection on me in that sense, right? how my son acts and how my son behaves and how he learns. You see, the good pleasure of God, and he takes joy in Christ because Christ is revealing God to man. Right? Because He is God. Jesus says, if, you, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Right? It's always God's good pleasure to reveal Himself through Scripture. Right? Throughout, the, throughout the Old Testament, little by little, God has been revealing Himself, and that's fully realized in the Son. Hebrews 1, verse 2 says, In the last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. In, in the previous verse it says, in times past he spoke to us through the prophets. Right? But we have limited revelation of who he is. But now we have Jesus Christ. It's God's pleasure to reveal himself to men through the Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. Okay? So the Son reveals to us the Father. So in other words, we know Jesus, we know God. That's the point. Right? What a blessing and a privilege that is. Do you realize the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament faithful they didn't have a full picture of who God is. Now, it's always been that we respond by faith. He, Habakkuk 2.4, which Paul actually quotes in Romans, that the righteous man shall live by faith. It's always been that the righteous of this world have faith and they trust in God. Right? They didn't have the full picture of who God is as we do, as revealed in Jesus Christ. So it's his good pleasure it's, it's, it's His pleasure, it's his, it's his joy in Christ that Christ is revealing who He is to man. I worked at Chick-fil-A. One of the things we would say over and over or train, and I, I would train all my workers, is my pleasure. You walk into a Chick-fil-A anywhere in the country, and if you respond, um, oh, thank you for this drink, oh, it's my pleasure. Not your welcome, my pleasure. We instilled it in our people. In fact, if I caught people not saying my pleasure, it was like, hey, my pleasure. Right? That was, that's, that's Chick-fil-A's little shtick, if you could say it that way. But the idea is that it's, it's a, we want to emphasize and teach an attitude of servanthood. And so we wanted it to really come from their hearts, saying it's a pleasure to serve you. It's a pleasure to, to, to be with you. It's a pleasure to help you. Right? That's the idea from a Chick-fil-A standpoint. We're here... When God says God's good pleasure, it's his, his great joy is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is revealing God to man. How do you know God? You know God by studying the Word of God. Right? He's revealed Himself. What we know about Jesus is revealed in the Word of God. You want to know about God? Read the Word. Right? You want to know about Jesus? It's right here. You have four Gospels plus everything else. Right? You want to know about Jesus? Read the Old Testament. Jesus actually says, the Old Testament testifies about me. So, not only do you have deity, good pleasure, but you also, he's emphasizing the incarnation. Right? In verse 18, he says, or sorry, 19, he says, for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness is the total sum of something. The fullness of God himself dwelled in Jesus Christ. Now, this is important because the, the docetist, docetist is a, it's an early Christian heritage, would say, Jesus only appeared to be God. Right, that he, he was just, uh, God, God's Spirit kind of indwelled him for a little while at, at the baptism of Jesus. And then when he got ready to time for to be crucified, that the God's Spirit removed himself and that Jesus was a man and he was just filled with God for a temporary time. Right? No, but Paul says here, look, all the fullness. Right? He repeats it. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We're talking about the incarnation that, that God Himself came to earth and lived a perfect life. 100% God and 100% man. And there's that, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a 50-50 split. He's not half God, half man. right? He's not Hercules. 
Hercules, who was half God, right? That's not Jesus. He's not a superman. Right? I've known people that have tattoos that, that say, oh, God is my superman. He's not a superman. Right? He was fully God and fully man. That's the incarnation. For all the fullness. You see, Paul's debunking these false teachers. One of the things that the false teachers here were saying in Colossians, and we'll learn about this later as we get into chapter 2, is they were saying that, that you had to go through these different emanations, that, that God has kind of revealed himself to different emanations or different angelic spirits. And you kind of had to walk up the ladder through the special knowledge in order to know who God is. Right? And God spread his deity among all these different angelic beings. So, so when Paul says, look, all the fullness of Christ, excuse me, all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, that Christ is God, it's making it clear that there's no dispersion of deity. Christ is supreme. Christ is the fullness of all God is, and he's the sole mediator between God and man. I was talking to my sister the other day on the phone, and she was telling me about her daughter, Abigail. And um, one of the things my sister and I have both talked about this in the past is we're trying to teach our kids obedience, but you also teach them grace, right? Like we, we help them understand that there's consequences for their actions, right? And that's discipline right, when they act a certain way. But at times we make sure, like, I'll go to Arden and I'll go back to my sister in a second, and I'll say to my son Arden, and I'll say, hey, you know, you deserve this, right? And he goes, yeah, you know, I, I disobeyed. And I'll say, well, you know, I'm going to show you grace this time. You deserve punishment. But I'm giving you what you don't deserve, which is grace. Right? And so my sister and I were talking about that, and she was telling me about how her, her daughter Abigail <coughs> got in trouble. And her daughter's like, no, no, no. And, and she goes, no, no, Mama, please, you know, give me God. Give me God. And she meant give, give her grace. And my sister said she kind of started chuckling, and that's what we were talking about. But, but that's a picture, right? We, we, we give grace for showing, showing God-like, Christ-like qualities, right? right? And, and in reality, that's what she's doing. She's revealing God to her daughter as she acts in a way that's consistent with the character of Christ, right? We give grace, right? So all the fullness, and the word here for dwell, by the way, sometimes we think about dwelling, and from an incarnational standpoint, or just in general standpoint, like dwelling, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and make my home there. The idea for dwelling is a permanent home. So all the fullness of deity dwelled. It didn't go and take up residence. It always was there. It dwelled there. Right? Ozzy's live in Australia. Right? right? Now, Ozzy's can live everywhere else, but ultimately you're Ozzy because you live in Australia. Right? There's a great line in a movie, and I can't remember, and it said, it said something along the lines of, you know, the problem with the French is that it's full of Frenchmen, right? The pro- problem with France is that full of Frenchmen, right? But the idea is that it's, it's a permanent dwelling. Like, Jesus didn't take up residence, or, or God didn't take up residence within Jesus. It goes back to one of those early heresies. No, no, all the fullness permanently dwelt in Him, right? Christ is the one and all-sufficient intermer- inter- intermediary, and he represents and he demonstrates God's word and his wisdom and all glory are revealed in him. Hebrews 1, just like I mentioned earlier, said, After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, but now in the last days he's spoken to us through his Son. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is supreme. He's deity. He's humbled Himself on a cross. He's demonstrated humility. He's supreme over the new creation because of His sacrifice on the cross. And Paul continues, So he is not only head of the body, the beginning, he's preeminent, he's deity, but he's the reconciler. This is a great section here. Verse verse 20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. So Jesus is the reconciler of all things. So it's a diplomatic term. It's interesting when you look at it from a Roman standpoint, an offending party was supposed to approach the one offended and make reparations. So in a diplomatic sense, if, if I was offended and, we were, and there needed to be reconciliation, then you who offended me would come to me and approach, ask for forgiveness, and bring some kind of reparation. I love the way, in the sense that that switched. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, while we were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus Christ is the personal agent in creation. He's the personal agent in redemption. We're reconciled to God. We're made right with Him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. One thing about that, you think about it from a reconciliation standpoint, if we need reconciliation, there must be a, a divide between God and man, right? He's presupposing that Christ is Lord, but there's a division, that there's a break between God and man, that the world and, and God is, is divided. There's a need for reconciliation. Right? We're in bondage to sin. John 8, Jesus says, I say to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. And you will die in your sins. Right? Ephesians 2, just a, just a beautiful passage when you think about where we were and what God has done is Ephesians 2. He says that you were dead in your trespasses in your sins. You formerly walked or you lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them we too, a little way Paul, Paul includes himself, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the, even as the rest. But God, verse 4, being rich in His mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there's a division between God and man. A need for reconciliation. You think about redemption. Redemption in itself is, is anthrocentric. It's, it's man-centered. Right? Angels will not be redeemed. For an angel, one sin and you're a demon. And there is no hope for salvation. Christ died, and His salvation is only for men. There is a destiny for Satan and his angels, his demons, and that's the lake of fire. So salvation in itself 
in its basic sense, is anthrocentric. It's a man-centric, right? He has chosen men and he calls them to himself. Now, one thing to speak about when you talk about reconciliation, there is a heresy out in this world, and it's been around for a long time, that says that all men will be saved. And a lot of times they, look, they go to this passage and they say, well, it says that God's reconciling all things. So he's reconciling all people. Everybody's going to be saved. It's called universal salvation. right? Universalism. There's a universalist churches around. Right? Now what they do with, when they take this passage, they take it out of context. And they say that it applies to everybody. They, they forget that the, there's, there, there's a hermeneutical principle called analogous of Scripture. Right? In other words, Scripture can't contradict itself. Right? And one of the things that Scripture definitely teaches is that there is a reality of hell. Revelation chapter 21 says that all will go before the great white throne judgment. Right? And if they're not a believer, their works will be examined and they will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever in hell, away from the presence of God. Scripture is clear about the judgment that awaits the ungodly. By the way, you know what the word Greek for ungodly is? Right? When, you, when, you, when you have in a Greek, when you, want to, when you want to negate something, like the word for, the word for uh, uh, God or word for those who believe in God are theist. If you want to say something is not theist, you put an A in front of it. This typical Greek, atheist, ungodly is an atheist, right? Someone who doesn't believe in God, the ungodly. So you see ungodly in the, in the New Testament, it's talking about atheists, people who refuse to, to submit, refuse to believe. There is a reality of hell for those that refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. So he reconciles all things. Ultimately, he will reconcile creation. And this is where... And this is where it gets interesting. In Romans 8, 20 and 23, it talks about creation groans. It longs for the freedom from corruption. It longs for the, the saints to be redeemed. So to be free from the bondage of sin and the corruption that's in this world. There will be a restoration. In Revelation 19, it speaks about the millennial reign of Christ. Revelation 19, flip there real quick. It's a good passage. Revelation 19, and it says that, sorry, uh, 19, well, it verse, into verse 20, <clears throat> sorry, into uh, chapter 20, uh, it says that, uh, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him to abyss, and he shut it, and he sealed it so that he would no longer deceive the nations for that thousand years until it's completed. And he said, I saw thrones, and on them judgment was given to them, the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony to Jesus. Skip down. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Verse 6, Blessed is the Holy One who has part in the first resurrection, over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Talking about the millennial reign of Christ. So when, when Christ will, will restore the creation that we live in, and we will reign with Him, we will remove evil, all the angelic evil forces, 
demonic forces will be removed and thrown into abyss for a thousand years. And those believers that survive the tribulation will in turn have kids and they will populate the world for a thousand years. There will be peace. There will be long life. There will be health. There will be no famine. There will be perfect justice. There will be no war. And Christ Himself will rule Jerusalem, or rule the world from Jerusalem as the center of this world. Multiple passages in the Old Testament teach Zechariah 14, especially when it talks about Christ ruling from Jerusalem. And Psalm 2, all the nations will come to Jerusalem and come and pay homage to the king or they will not receive any blessings. Psalm 2. There will be a thousand year millennial reign of Christ. And for us as believers that die before then or go to meet Him in the air, we will receive resurrected bodies and we will rule and we reign with Him during that thousand year period. Right? Of perfection. It's the way things should have been. So there will be a restoration. Right? And He promises peace. You can't have peace, ladies and gentlemen, without victory. Right? Jesus Christ has, has won. Right? You think about the Germans. Think about the Japanese in World War II. Right? You, you couldn't have peace without utter defeat of those nations. Right? Think about North Korea. Do we really live at peace with North Korea? Right? We, we've kind of signed an armistice with them. Right? It's not even a peace treaty. There's still a tension there. It's not peace. Peace is not the absence of war. It's the presence of victory. So there will be peace. Right? Because Christ will return and He will subjugate His enemies to Himself. And He will judge the world. And there will be peace. Right? Finally, submission. I love this because He says, <clears throat> He says that he will subjugate or he will reconcile all things, right? All things to himself. When he, when he reconciles all things, ultimately, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that new heavens and a new earth will not include any ungodliness or wickedness, right? So it carries the idea, the word here, when you look at reconcile in this particular part of this verse, in verse 20, when he reconciles all things, it's, it's an idea of pacification, right? Philippians 2 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Satan and all the ungodly in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 11, are thrown into the lake of fire forever. They, the, the universe itself is cleansed from all evil. And then a, then a new heavens and a new earth are created in a perfect submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? What a joy that will be. Right? So there will be a restoration during the millennium and then a recreation afterwards. And Christ is supreme over the new creation, His church now, and He's supreme over the future new creation of all things, a new heavens and a new earth. Right? I was recently um, reading, a, uh, recently reading a, a, an article that was talking about photography. I was thinking about Peter and Brenda as I was reading the article. But in the article, I was, I was reading about how this mom was taking a class and one of her assignments was to go and, and take a picture of just an outside scene, you know, something in nature. She found this beautiful tree, just a beautiful tree, and it was in a meadow and there was flowers and just, just a beautiful picture. She's like, well, I'm going to set up my tripod and we'll take some pictures and try to get their perfect picture. 
Well, while she was setting up, her five-year-old daughter was running around, and, and her five-year-old daughter kept running in the frame. And she, she's laughing, her daughter's having a good time. And so the mom kept taking pictures uh, of, of her daughter in the picture with the, with the tree in the meadow. And she said, oh, this is going to be a, a beautiful picture when I present it. And she presented one of the pictures that had the, the mom, I'm sorry, that had the, the daughter and had the tree. And it was, a, it was a pretty picture. And the professor looked at her and, he, and um, she said, you know, you didn't do the assignment. You know, the assignment was to focus in on one thing, right? So, and she said, look, as a, as a photographer, you have to be careful. When you include multiple things in a picture, you draw people's attention away from where you want them to be. Right? You, 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 you divide their focus. Right? Believers, there is only one thing that we should be focused on. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We submit to Him. We glorify Him. We honor Him. Right? We can be distracted by the things of this world. John actually warns his readers, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. See, Christ is unique above His creation because He's God. He's supreme over His creation now, and, he will, and He's supreme over His new creation, starting with us and culminating with the new heavens and the new earth. What a joy that is for us. We live with this hope, right? So how, how, does it, how do we respond? We respond in hope. I love what, the, what Paul says in the Colossians. He says, he says um, we give thanks to God in verse 3, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and praying for you. He says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope that you have. You see, our hope for what awaits us in the future influences our behavior, influences our faith in Christ, our, our trust in Him now, and how we respond to each other. So we respond in greater faith in Him, and we respond in a greater love for each other because of the hope that awaits us. Brethren, you can trust God to do what is right. He will return and reward His people when He will judge the wicked and godly of this world. With all the schemes of Satan and all his false teaching out in the world arrayed against you to entice you to look at it rather than Christ. Right? God will do what is right. He will return. And I'll end with this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we thank You so much for Your Word that we can... Just get a better picture, a glimpse of the Son. Truly you are supreme, O Lord. You're supreme over your creation. By you and for you, all things were created. You're supreme over your new creation. You're head over the church. And one day you will reconcile all things to yourself. O Lord, we look forward to the day when you will come again. We no longer have to worry about pain and suffering and sorrow and evil all around us. What a glorious day that will be when you establish your kingdom. O come, Lord Jesus. Amen.